Hello and welcome to the ERMI podcast. I'm Joel Applebaum, the Chief Content Officer for ERMI and Captive.com. And on today's podcast, I'm pleased to have Derek Bridgman, Managing Director at Strategic Risk Solutions, or SRS, in Europe and a member of the Board of Directors. He's responsible for developing and managing the firm's consulting business in Europe. And today, we're excited to discuss with Derek the latest dynamics of the European captive insurance market. So, Derek, first of all, hello. Hey, Joel. Nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, we're delighted to have you. Well, to get started, our audience and I would like to get to know you a little better. So, can you tell us about your professional journey? Maybe share some insights into how you entered the field of captive insurance and tell us about your responsibilities at SRS in Europe. Sure, happy to. So, I suppose to start off, I'm, I'm an accountant by qualification. I'm based in Dublin in Ireland. I've worked in a few different areas prior to sort of falling into the captive world. Previously, I worked in financial reporting and audit, both in roles in Europe and also Australia. I had a, a two-year stint in Australia. And it was really pr probably following that couple of years in Australia, I returned to Ireland and landed in Marsh. Not knowing too much about captives, but proceeded then to spend 15 years with Marsh in the captive world. So I was 10 years as part of the, the Dublin team, uh, captive management team. And then really I, I moved into the consulting role. So that really saw me overseeing Marsh's EMEA advisory practice out of the UK for about five years. So joined SRS in April 2020, so just coming into COVID really, and, and also coinciding with the beginning of the hardening of the, of the commercial markets, uh, which really brought challenges and kind of opportunities as well. I suppose some, some important work in, in SRS had really been undertaken before me joining in Europe. I, I suppose we are very much new to the, the European landscape. But they've done a lot of a lot of important work in advance. I suppose my remit was really to help build a team and offer a competitive SRS consulting and management uh, business in in Europe. We established and we staffed the the Luxembourg office. We opened a, a Switzerland branch and also we set up a Guernsey office and protected cell vehicle there. And really, we we hired some key staff. Peter Child came in, and and Peter is, is CEO for Europe. Max Jones joined to head up our our sort of Luxembourg branch, and and between the three of us, we sit on a European exec team and and help to try drive growth. So that's really been my foray into into captives and also into SRS. Awesome. Well, I guess I'm most surprised that you left Australia. I just returned from a three-week trip there. It was a lot of fun. I didn't want to come back, that's for sure. <laughs> but over the last two years, SRS has experienced a lot of growth in Europe. Where have you observed an increase in the establishment of captive insurance entities, and what is driving European captive growth? Maybe help us fill us in on that. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. I suppose from an SRS perspective, they were very well established, obviously very well known, the leading independent insurance manager, even at the time of coming into Europe. So very well known in the US onshore and offshore, Bermuda, Cayman, Barbados. So really, I suppose part of it was about leveraging the infrastructure that we already had um, and enhancing it and, and adapting it where required you know, to suit the European European market. I suppose part of that then was distribution channel. We needed to build a distribution channel. And really that was building relationships with, with some of the large broking firms and the network and broking networks to really develop that distribution. So there are quite a lot of brokers out there who would outside of the Aon Willis and Marsh who wouldn't have in-house captive capabilities or captive consulting capabilities. So 
that that was a neat a neat fit. We we provide an independent offering that allows them to kind of play in that market in that field. I think there were market factors at play. The really the contraction of the primary markets really hit clients hard around 2020, 2021, resulted in more challenging scenarios for them. And, and really it just generated some really good discussions for us. Companies and risk managers really wanted to understand more about captives and, and really understand how they could be utilized, even if they hadn't seen them or hadn't operated them before. So that's really how how I suppose we just started having we're generating really good discussions. I think we hired some very key staff, some some senior folks joined us from some competitors. So we were able to bring a, a very credible offering to Europe. I think it, it's important to say there has been an awful lot of growth through the recent three years, but I think a lot of the work had been done previously. So, you know, even in my time at Marsh, we'd undertaken a lot of feasibility studies where clients, for whatever reason, hadn't moved forward at the time. So when the market did change, they were really in a good position then to move together quickly or move, move forward quickly. I think from an SRS perspective, we are seeing growth um, and we're seeing it kind of in, in, in different levels of growth and different domiciles. So I think if you take the offshore versus onshore, an offshore in Europe would be the likes of the Guernsey. So Guernsey has had greater growth than, than that of the U- European onshore domiciles. In particular, cell captives have grown very, very quickly over the last few years. I think that's likely due to the speed at which you can you can implement a cell captive. I think some corporates were very much caught on the hop in terms of the renewal terms that they were they were getting close to renewal, <laughs> and, and needed to look at an alternative. And, and quite quite frankly, a cell captive provided you know a quick quick to market solution. But we've actually, in, in recent times, we've actually seen a number of our clients where they were established as a cell are now looking to convert to a wholly owned or a standalone vehicle. So, so that, that's a trend we're seeing as well. I think in certain jurisdictions, we've seen grow quicker than others. So Luxembourg and Switzerland have grown quite, quite quickly for us. And that's a combination of really new establishments and also wins from maybe competitor managed firms. I'd say as well, we, we're seeing growth in obviously in captive management but I think consulting is something we've seen kind of exponential growth over the last few years. Our consulting practice has doubled year and year over the last three. And we haven't, with that, we have really invested heavily in consulting expertise, actuarial resources. We've established an actuarial practice in, in Europe. And I think that this has really just been to meet the demand, quite frankly. I suppose there's a couple of reasons I, I would see for the increase in, in consulting interest. It's probably clients, there's more captives that now. Clients are looking to understand the structure and understand how to utilize it better. So oftentimes they're looking for, for support from an actuarial and analytical perspective. So, you know, we're happy to see that trend and, and we're likely to see that continue, I would say. Yeah, glad to see it's it's driving growth. So I, I want to dig a little deeper. I'm I'm particularly interested in learning more about the dynamic of regulatory changes taking place in Europe. How do you see the landscape of captive insurance adjusting to these changes? And what guidance would you provide to businesses as they navigate through the evolving regulatory environment there? I think it's a key point. It is challenging or has been challenging from a regulatory perspective in, to operate in Europe, particularly European onshore, because of the requirements associated with Solvency 2. So Solvency 2 was implemented in 2016, and that was a, a dramatic shift to the way things had previously been done. I think there have been a couple of, you know, I, I would see this as nearly two strands. There have been different regulatory developments in the EU. One really relates to the 
to the proportionality and, and the, the, the regulatory requirements associated with operating a capital. But I think in recent years now, or last year or so, we've had IOPA, so that's the European regulatory body, has undertaken a review of the regulation and the Solvency II framework around captives with a view really to exploring how more proportionality could be applied. Really, this is something the captive industry has been seeking since the implementation of Solvency II is, is more proportionality. Essentially, the majority of these captives are writing group risk. However, they, the regulatory requirements imposed on them are still quite onerous. And so we see, we see opportunity for, for more proportionality and a reduction in, in those regulatory requirements. And I think that that is something we are expecting. We haven't seen the final text. I think it will be interesting to see the final text, and that, that is expected quite soon. But I think that is something that is going to help from an operational and regulatory perspective. I think the second consideration I see from a regulatory perspective is really around new companies or new, new countries implementing captive legislation. So these would have been countries where previously there was, there was limited attractiveness for establishing a captive. So I'd, I'd include the likes of France and Italy in these. But I think the reason for that is essentially the captive would have been regulated as commercial entities. So the, the additional burden associated with that would have been really two owners for most captive owners. So we are seeing a, a shift there. And, and I think that the market has helped this. So the highest profile one was France, who has now implemented specific captive legislation. And so that, that resulted in an SRS setting up. We've set up an office now in Paris to service clients locally. And we're already seeing very quick growth in that. So we expect that. And that's something I, I think a trend going forward. We just talk of Italy, Spain, obviously UK has been spoken about for, for a number of years. But I think if they can get things aligned, I think there's potential big growth in, in those countries. You kind of mentioned a little bit earlier that as the market hardened, some companies turned to sell captives to shore up their, their their coverages that they needed, and that could lead to further captives. So I'm wondering about what industries are most served by captive structures. Maybe you can shed some light on the most prevalent types of captives in Europe and the reason behind their popularity with these industries. Sure. I think we are seeing risks across the board. So I, I would say traditionally it's been the, the the traditional type of risk. So the property and casualty type risks. So the the property, the general liability, the professional indemnity, et cetera, et cetera. So they're very much tried and tested within captive structures. I think in recent times, we've been seeing more maybe non-traditional risks coming in. So the, the likes of cyber, the likes of extended warranty products um, be, being evaluated. Employee benefits obviously has been spoken about for a good number of years. I'd, I'd say, I think it's, it's fair to say the uptake has been slow and steady it's it, but what's interesting about employee benefits is that when we do see benefits brought into a captive quite often the premium can dwarf that of or that that was in there for the likes of a property or a liability program so we are seeing new risks the captives again potentially being used to incubate risks will be interesting i'd say with respect to sort of different domiciles as well, it's important to say we see certain domiciles have certain characteristics which can make them more attractive to different structures. So, for example, Malta is the only EU jurisdiction which has cell legislation. So you mentioned cells earlier. So when a client is looking at an EU onshore cell, there's, I suppose there's limited choice in that if they are looking to be onshore, they are looking to write direct into Europe. Malta is really the only option for them. 
so I think that's important to point out. It's some jurisdictions are more traditional in terms of whether they're direct or reinsurance type uh, structure. So Luxembourg has essentially an equalization reserve mechanism, which makes it more attractive really for from a fiscal perspective for reinsurance vehicles. Therefore, reinsurance is, is the primary structure within Luxembourg, although there is a handful of, of direct riders. I think the likes of Ireland, again, a mature jurisdiction would have probably a 50-50 mix of direct versus reinsurance. But as things stand, there's no other jurisdiction such as Luxembourg or Ireland where said legislation exists. So I think that will be interesting. That's an interesting trend, I think, to watch in terms of whether other countries look to maybe implement. I don't think it's going to happen in the short term, but it's always a topic for discussion. Great. So I'm really looking for the ways European captives contribute to the benefit of both business owners and the broader industry. So maybe you can help fill me in on that. Yeah, I think for business owners, it's really, I think we are now getting buy-in from owners in terms of an understanding of how the captive can really mitigate some of the challenges that they're having in the, in the commercial market. So again, the, the hard market has helped that, whereas some, some CFOs might not have utilized or heard of captive previously. So we've had an education period whereby we can just educate them in terms of what the be- what the potential benefits are and how it might help them take more control of their overall insurance placement. I think the benefits can come from a financial perspective, strategic or operational, really. We, we generally sort of segregate them into those three categories. I think from a financial perspective, it's really trying to in essence, is trying to capture underwriting profit, which is currently being leaked to commercial markets. So is that, you know, analyzing your claims to, from a, really a cost of risk perspective to understand whether there's a, a better way or more financially viable way of doing this. So that's generally where the financial benefit comes from. The strategic value, obviously, that can, can be a, a number of different avenues. But again, that can be often strategic value in terms of managing volatility of business units. So taking a, a more aggregated approach and maybe looking to to kind of optimize the overall market attachment point. In terms of operational benefits, there are certainly operational benefits. And I think these are probably more subtle. And in order for a captive to or for a CFO to sign off on a captive, generally we have to see that it makes financial sense. But I think once it does make financial sense, the, the companies are very much open to understanding what the strategic and the operational benefit could be. I think from a market perspective, from how captives can benefit the broader industry, we maybe want to take something like cyber as an example, like going back a number of years, the, the commercial market really wasn't willing to take on too much cyber. There was a certainly an education perspective. So we did find that we had a number of captives, captive owners use their captive to maybe incubate the risk. So to take the, the cyber risk into the captive to better understand it, to retain the risk. And I think if we'd have asked clients, did that make a financial benefit by taking it into the captive. I think in most cases it didn't. There wasn't a market sort of credit being given by the markets. But what it did allow them, uh, the companies to do was to better understand the risk. But not only the companies, it allowed the market to better understand the risk. So we find then, you know, that the, the market is perhaps more willing to take take on the risk in the future time when the company has better data, is better able to quantify their true cyber exposure. So I think Going forward, it's likely that we will see more of that. So maybe captives being used to incubate risks. So perhaps around ESG, we're having a number of discussions there. So where the market is really 
you know, unwilling to take the risk at the moment. Maybe companies are, are left with a, a situation where they can incubate the risk, they can take it into the captive, and then they can they can look to kind of gather the data and better understand it, quantify it, and, and then maybe look at a kind of a risk transfer over the coming years. So that, that's really, we see some some trends there that, that might continue. That's interesting. I, I think especially the environmental social governance has been more pronounced in, in Europe, and it's interesting to see that captives can take a lead there and in, in, in sort of incubating that risk. So that's very cool. And I, I think just in general, maybe maybe this is stating the obvious, but when companies take more financial risk and become more involved and educated in the risk, generally they're safer. So, <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd agree, and I, I think there can be a better longevity of risk. Actually, I think it's a better risk that they, then you're able to perhaps transfer to the market because you can retain, you can look, you can identify that sweet spot at which you know makes sense to retain the risk, and then at which point it makes sense to transfer. Yeah, it's really great insight, Derek. I really appreciate it. So, I guess looking ahead to 2024 and the next couple of years. I'd love a prediction or two for the growth of captives in Europe and the factors that will drive growth in the coming years. Yeah, obviously, no one has has a crystal ball, but I think it's it is difficult to predict. I, I, but I think I think it's fair to say that you know the recent activity of the new formations is 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 most likely going to ensure that we continue looking at these from a consulting perspective. So we'll. Generally, we find the clients will, will establish captives for one or two lines of risk, which are perhaps problematic or make sense, sense to retain. But once after a year or two, once they get more comfortable with retaining that risk, I think they generally will look at, well, could we bring in additional risks or could we push the retention of the risks higher? And I think as that happens, we generally find there's a demand for maybe more consulting, more analytics, Com- companies have you know, brought in this, this risk. They want to understand, is there diversification benefit within the captive? And, and if there is, how do we kind of capture that diversification benefit? So some of the things we've seen a trend, we, we've seen through 2023 and we, we're seeing it through 2024 and we expect it to continue, is around multi-line, multi-year offerings. So more structured reinsurance placements. So essentially have the captive really act as an aggregator take in a layer of risk across a number of different lines on a multi-line and a multi-year basis and then transfer risk in excess of their their kind of risk appetite so really i think companies looking to optimize the structures that they have i think will be important um, and so we expect a consulting trend with respect to analytics I think in terms of, I think where it's more difficult to, to predict is around the captive establishment piece. Obviously, we've seen a good influx of, of new captives in, into Europe, probably not, a, certainly not as much as the US and certainly not as much as offshore. And I think that that kind of the reason for that is probably it's it's challenging to set up a captive. You need to very much be in it for, for the long term. Oftentimes in EU onshore, for example, there can be long lead in times. There can be regulatory processes that can last six nights, nine months, sometimes longer. So I think that, you know, that, that obviously can impact the speed at which the, the captive set up. But we are de- definitely seeing a greater interest in that. I think it's probably I've, I've seen some comments in, in the market around 
questioning whether captives are alternative risk financing tools now. You know, if you think about it, I think it's acknowledged that the majority of Fortune 500 companies have or have utilized the captive in some form. So we are seeing it come more into that kind of traditional space. So I think as that happens, we'll, we'll kind of see captives grow as, as companies understand them better in, internally. I think they're very much very much open to using them and you know once they once they continue to provide benefit yeah it's interesting we used to use the term a lot more frequency the art market right (laughs) i mean i don't know if our listeners know but you know you're a leading independent captive insurance manager at srs and you've been pretty instrumental in spearheading new captive insurance initiatives across europe i'm wondering if you could share some insight into the strategies and challenges involved in captive formations. You mentioned some of them lead time, but maybe if you could just expand upon that for yeah, the people sure. who are thinking about it. Absolutely. I think we we have, you know, we, we've mentioned some of the challenges around regulatory and, and they are obvious. I think part of it is is having that robust consulting piece done at the outset so that we can, the company is very much open to understanding exactly what the the requirements are. And I think that the onus as well, I think, is on the consultant really to to have that open dialogue right from the outset to to kind of educate the the corporate that, look, if you are looking to have a captive set up in Europe, it's not going to be a a three-month process. You are going to have to run through. There is a life cycle in terms of a detailed feasibility study with relevant recommendations. You will then have your internal decision-making and then you'll have your, your application if you decide to proceed. So I think taking the challenge head on, I think helps and educating the owner and that way, because I think in the past, there has been a number of applications that have started in Europe where clients come back and said, we didn't anticipate that it would take this long. And, you know, I've heard of that in industry and I think it's important, I think, to educate them and and, uh, so that there, there are no kind of surprises halfway through an application. So part of our strategy really is that is educating that's what that's what we've tried to do and we have we so developing a lot of case studies and things like that we've done a lot of lunch and learns uh, to educate brokers to educate uh, risk managers and things like that and we've we found that that's that's been very helpful i think as part of the the consulting offering which obviously i i i mentioned i mentioned consulting a number of times that is very much my area but we have seen heavy growth being generated through consulting just purely because of the market challenges i think going forward some of the things we will be developing our offering so that it's, it's known what we offer differently to some of our competitors, which are very much broker-owned. And um, so, so I think highlighting that independence and, and really, I think part of the strategy is challenging the status quo. So developing the consulting capabilities really with, with different specialists within that. So within our consulting, we have general captive consulting, we have structured re-experts, we have underwriting, we have actual analytics, we look at legacy risk as well. And I think that is important. And, and some things, sometimes it can be ignored. Sometimes people think captives are will, will go forever. Typically, they will have a lifespan. So I think it's important to work with clients as well, where, you know, when it makes sense, perhaps to, to explore options, maybe not to close captives, but maybe to novate or to, to sell legacy risks. So that that's, again, a trend we're seeing. I think you mentioned there as well, like I'd reiterate that the challenges around the regulatory burden, it is still difficult to do business in Europe from a regulatory perspective, although we, we are hopeful that we will have more proportionality come back. But I think once companies have established 
the, the captives in Europe and gone through the regular the, the establishment piece, the, the benefit that it can provide in terms of providing direct access to Europe and ensuring that they can capture those, those financial and strategic benefits, I think, is, is pretty evident. So I suppose we will continue to work with, with our distribution channels um, to kind of highlight and to help them quantify what the potential captive value can be. Awesome. So it seems like you've weathered a lot of change at, at SRS in, in the European captive market and, and been changing, kind of started off with your growth and structure changes. I'm wondering specifically in terms of launching and, and nurturing new captives, if there's any innovations or shifts in strategy we might expect to see in the coming years in this market. I think for us, from a management perspective and like shifts, we, we would have, from an SRS perspective, I think there'll be, we will continue to diversify. What was quite evident to me when I joined, I assumed SRS just managed captives and um, because, you know, the part of their message was we are the largest independent captive manager. But I think what was really encouraging was to find out exactly there, there were other vehicles, so commercial reinsurers, commercial insurers, MGAs, MGUs, different cell vehicles that we manage as well. So I think there will continue to be diversification in that. You know, we've announced a new MGU offering Altitude. I think it's just supporting clients and, and participating in different areas of the value chain. Obviously, it's it's been documented around our private equity investment last year. I think that will help us in terms of growing. I think our, our growth has pretty much been organic to date. I think part of that has been by design. There hasn't been an awful lot of value within the market around M&As. I think some of the prices that have been for independent, smaller independent captive managers have, have been very high. So finding value for money can, can be a challenge. But I think it's something that we will continue to do. Um, and now we have very much the financial backing that an M&A opportunity makes sense that we will look at it. And I think that will be important. Well, awesome. I guess that's a wrap for another insightful episode of our podcast. We've delved into deep into the world of captive insurance in, in Europe today and uncovered some fascinating aspects. I, I hope our listeners found our discussion with Derek as enlightening as, as I did. And if today's episode has sparked your curiosity, I highly recommend visiting captive.com. It's a treasure trove of free information, offering an extensive range of resources that can deepen your understanding of captive insurance. And also we have a free newsletter, so you can subscribe to Captive Wire there, keep you informed on what's changing, what's new, and also about our podcasts. Please take a moment and visit captive.com and become a part of our ever-growing family of captive insurance enthusiasts. I want to thank you for listening and stay tuned to keep learning.